Well, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be with you, and uh, thank you for joining us online as well. We've got people all over the country tuning in and even around the world, so we're glad that you're out there. Um, as you may know, if you've been here, we've been uh, doing a series called A Fight Worth Fighting, and we're uh, going through the book of Second Timothy, which was the final letter that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was executed. And so you can only imagine that his words carried a whole lot of weight and, and meaning, you know, Guy's final words. So uh, we're excited about that. Um, if we stayed with the schedule, then today we would be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. Uh, and that would put us into 2 Timothy chapter 3 next weekend. However, next weekend is Mother's Day weekend, and I just didn't think it would be appropriate to speak about the subject matter in 2 Timothy chapter 3, so I decided to do a little switch here. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about 2 Timothy chapter 3 today, and we'll eventually get back to chapter 2 uh, sometime in this series. But So next weekend, we're going to have a great Mother's Day celebration, uh, something very special planned. And I want to encourage you to be here, whether you're a mother or whether you're not a mother, I think you're going to be blessed by what you hear next weekend. And so invite your family and friends, invite your moms, if you have a mom still with you, and uh, I think that you'll really enjoy that. Now, I think today's topic is going to be of great interest to all of you. Um, so get out your Bible and... Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 6. You can also open up our South Bay Community Church app. Uh, I also suggest and recommend that you have a pad of paper uh, so you can take notes because we have a lot of ground to cover today and I, and I hope and pray that, that God's word will really speak to you and encourage you. So before we begin, let me open up our time in a word of prayer, okay? Father, thank you so much. It is, thank you for the beautiful day you've given to us. And uh, Lord, I am so excited about you know, bringing your word. And I pray that your word would accomplish its purpose today in the hearts and lives of everyone who is here and everyone who is watching. I pray that your word would convict us. I pray that your word would instruct us. I pray that your word would show us exactly what it is uh, that we need to do in our lives and how it is we need to live and Father, even give us some insight into all the things that are going on today. And uh, Lord, help me simply to be uh, a vessel that can clearly uh, articulate what your word says. Use me to that end as well. And may you be glorified in, in our time together today. So thank you, Father, so much. And we pray you'd bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1959... While on a mapping mission trip for uh, NATO, uh, a Turkish army captain and cartographer named Ilhan Durupinar snapped this aerial photo of an area approximately 15 to 20 miles south of Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey. In the picture was a curious boat-shaped object estimated to be around 500 feet long that was embedded into the mountainside at an elevation of around 6,500 feet. There, right in the middle of the picture, you can see that boat-shaped object, and Captain Drupanar promptly reported his 
discovery in this photo to the Turkish government. In the next year, Life magazine got a hold of one of the photos that he took and published it along with a story and asked the question that was on a lot of people's minds. And that is, is this mysterious boat-shaped object Noah's Ark, which, is, which was written about in the Bible? So that same year, Durepinar and a group from the Archaeological Research Foundation hiked up to the site to check it out for themselves. Well, two days after their investigation, they determined that the formation was, quote, a freak of nature and not man-made, unquote. Hence, they concluded that it wasn't Noah's Ark. And then everybody forgot about it. It just... Everyone forgot about it except an amateur explorer named Ron Wyatt. He couldn't get the photo and the story in Life magazine out of his brain. And so in 1977, 17 years after that article came out, Ron Wyatt was finally able to go to eastern Turkey to see that formation for the very first time. And here he is standing right in front of it. Well, after seeing the structure for the first time, he was convinced that it was Noah's Ark. He was convinced. And he came to this conclusion, this very different conclusion from Life magazine and for these researchers for a, ver for a variety of different reasons. And I'm going to tell you just a few of them. First, and not in any particular order, he believed that this was Noah's Ark because of the size of the structure, because, simply because of its size. When God instructed Noah to build an ark, he was very specific about its dimensions. He said in Genesis chapter 6, take a look at that, and I'll put it up here for you as well. God said, this is how you were to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, referring to its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. So God said, told, told Noah that the ark was to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now, a cubit was the length from your the bottom of your elbow to the tip of your tallest finger. So that would be your middle finger. That was a cubit. And it was a standard measurement in ancient times. In fact, the Hebrew word for cubit means forearm, right? And the average length of a man's forearm is roughly 18 inches. The problem with the cubit was that it was different for everyone. It was different for everyone. For example, um, I took out a tape measure and measured my forearm from elbow to the tip of my middle finger, and it came to a little over 19 inches. Pastor Greg measured his, and his forearm came to 15 inches. He's kind of a wimp. <laughs> I'm kidding, right? But it's different for everyone, right? It's different for everyone. And that means 300 cubits could be different depending on the forearm of the man who is making the ark. And thus, 
And, and one of the folks that, one group of people that realized that this was an issue, a problem, were the Egyptians. And so they came up with, for the purpose of uniformity, they came up with what they call the Egyptian royal cubit, which, that, which became the standard for measurement. And a, an Egyptian royal cubit was exactly 20.62 inches in length, 20.62 inches in length. And the Egyptian royal cubit became the measurement standard in the ancient world. And it even had a ruler to go with it so you would know what it is. Now, as you may know, it is believed that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Therefore, he wrote the, the account of Noah, right? And Moses, we know Moses was greatly influenced by Egyptian thinking and by Egyptian culture. In fact, Acts 7, 22, put it up here for you, says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, right? He was mighty in his words and deeds. So he knew a lot about Egyptian culture and thinking. Therefore, when he wrote that the ark was 300 cubits long in Genesis 16, 15, it is very likely that he had the Egyptian royal cubit in mind. Therefore, if you were to multiply the Egyptian royal cubit 20.62 inches times 300 cubits, you would get 515 and a half feet. That would be the length of the ark. And if you were to multiply 20.62 inches times 50 cubits, you would get 85.91 feet or rounded off to 86 feet, which would be the width of the ark. And then if you multiply the Egyptian royal cubit times 30, you would get 51 and a half feet for the height, rounded off to 51 feet. And thus, the Genesis 6 dimensions of the ark would have looked like this, 50, uh, 515 times 86 times 51 feet. That's basically what this was. And these numbers were consistent with what Life Magazine reported the dimensions of the structure to be. Life Magazine said it was 450 times 75 times 45 feet. Now, you can, as you can see, these numbers are fairly close, all in the ballpark. Now, getting back to Ron Wyatt, he didn't make just one trip to the site. He made as many as 20 trips to the site over many, many years. And with each passing year, the technology improved and the scanning equipment improved. The scanning equipment that he took became more high-tech, more sophisticated. In fact, in 2014, a number of remarkable images were taken of the formation using ground-penetrating radar and resistivity ground imaging technology. And they were all in 3D. And this one here showed that the hull was still intact. There was a real boat embedded in the ground. And this one was a side view of the ark. And notice it's on a slant because the ark is on a mountain. The ark is set on a slant. And it showed that it had two, they could de de decipher two decks. Uh, the, you know, scripture said there were three decks, but they were to decipher, they were able to decipher two decks which I can't make out, but if you have a trained eye, like doctors that are able to read ultrasounds and x-rays, I have no idea. I can't ever make it out, but they can see it. But if you have a trained eye, you see the two decks. And then check this out. The scans showed that the formation was exactly 157 meters long. 
157 meters from bow to stern is how long it was. And this was absolutely incredible because 157 meters is exactly 515 feet or 300 cubits, just like the scriptures say. A second reason why Ron White believed the formation was Noah's Ark was because of where it was found. Genesis chapter 8, take a look at chapter 8 starting in verse 1. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. And the mountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. And the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Notice that. When the the floodwaters receded, Noah's ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Not on the Mount of Ararat, but on the mountains of Ararat. Take a look at this photo. This is a photo of Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat is the one on the right. It is a stratovolcano, stands at an elevation of 16,854 feet. It is humongous. And then next to it, to the left, is Little Ararat. And that's what it's called. It's called Lesser Ararat or Little Ararat. Stands at 12,782 feet. But according to Wikipedia, together they comprise an area that goes on for around 420 square miles. And that entire area there of 420 square miles is referred to as the Mountains of Ararat. And you can see in the background, you can see in the background that there are, little, there are mountains all around it. This goes on for 420 20 mile, 20 square miles, the Mountains of Ararat. And that's where, according to the scriptures, Noah's Ark came to rest when the waters receded on the mountains, not the mount, but on the mountains of Ararat. Third reason why White believed that the formation uh, was Noah's Ark was because on one of his trips, he discovered drogue or anchor stones scattered throughout a wide area near the Ark. Now, drogue stones were these massive uh, stone slabs that were used in ancient times to stabilize ships in rough seas. Here's a diagram of how they would work. You would have a ship there, And you would have a a huge slab of stone. It would be a hole cut right in the middle of it. And then the sailors would put a rope through it and then tie it, tie it up and then cinch it up to the, uh, to the ship itself. And they would drag these things and it would serve as a drag in the water, but it would also serve to stabilize the ship in rough seas. And then when the anchor was no longer needed, the ropes would be cut by the sailors and the stones would sink to the bottom. This anchor stone was discovered from a shipwreck off the coast of Turkey, and it weighed 485 pounds. On one of his trips, Wyatt discovered eight anchor stones, including these two right here, all within close proximity to one another, as if the, sto- as if the ropes were cut because the waters had receded. And this was another reason why, and that's why uh, Ron White on the left, this is another reason why White believed that this was the ark. Now, if you're wondering why you're hearing this maybe for the first time, you're wondering why you hadn't, didn't, know, didn't know anything about the discovery of Noah's ark is because I think the devil is in a pretty good job of keeping this under wraps because, I mean, if this is true, and I believe it to be true, I mean, this is, this is incredible news. I mean, this is big news because it would prove 
that God is real, that it proved that his scriptures are true. It would have proved that there was a worldwide flood. And so I think that's why so few people know about this because the devil has been at work trying to keep it under wraps. When we hear something like this, and by the way, I just have to add, you know, we don't need any proof, right? We don't need any physical evidence to believe in God. We simply believe in God. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? We don't need proof that this happened. But whenever there is proof like this, it only serves to confirm and to fortify and build up our faith. And we, we'll look at this and we'll just go, wow, that, isn't that amazing? Doesn't surprise me. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if, we, if after our trip to Israel, we just make a trip over to Turkey and take a look at this. I don't think we can do it this time, but maybe one of these days we can take a group of us and we'll go stand in front of the ark and wouldn't that be amazing? So here's another question for you. Why did God tell Noah to build the ark in the first place? Why did he tell Noah to build the ark in the first place? Well, take a look at Genesis chapter six again, verse 12. And it says, and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You see, the first reason God told Noah to build the ark was because everyone had become corrupted. Notice it says here that all flesh, all flesh had become corrupted. I mean, man was corrupt. And, and the word, Hebrew word for corrupt means to ruin or to, to be rotten. In other words, man... His, he was morally corrupted. His, his soul had become putrid and rotten. Second reason why God told Noah to build an ark was because he was filled with violence, it says. He was filled with violence. Man was violent. Hebrew word for filled means to be dedicated to or to be given over to. Man was fully given over to violence against his fellow man. This was his default. Violence had become man's default. This was how he related and reacted to, to man around him. And that is he would become aggressive and hostile. He would get in the other guy's face. Kind of sounds like today. Now jump up a few verses and take a look at verse 5. Genesis 6, 5 says, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, the third reason why God told Noah to build the ark was because man, his wickedness was great. Man was wicked as all get out. In fact, it was so great that this tells us that all he could ever think about was doing evil. Continually, in other words, all the time. That's all he could ever do. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He was wicked all the time. He would never hit the pause button on his wickedness, never took a break from it. He was evil continually. And if that wasn't bad enough... God added this a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. This one ought to break your heart. The Lord said in his heart, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, even young people were evil and rotten to the core. Even young people. And it started when they were young and it just, evil just consumed them. And that's, and that's what they were like. It was, they were evil all the time. And then there's one more thing, and that is sexual depravity had reached new heights during this time. Genesis chapter 6, verse 2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the 
Two verses later, the verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, you know, I, I addressed this passage very uh, in detail in 2021 in a series called God versus Satan. And so for the sake of time, I'm going to go back. I'm not going to unpack it again for you today, except to say that I believe, and by the way, if you want to, if you want to get all the details on why I believe what I'm going to say to be true, then, then go back and listen. Just go to our, our YouTube page, SBCC Live, and search for God versus Satan, and you should find that message. But, but uh, all I'm going to say is this. I believe that this passage describes the ultimate perversion. It describes the ultimate perversion, and that is the sexual union between a man or a woman and a demon. That's what this is. I mean, this is as deviant as you can get. And uh, the short version then is that the union between a man or a woman and a demon produce these hybrid creatures, half man and half demon called Nephilim. And in the Hebrew, the word Nephilim is derived from the, Hebrew, from the Hebrew verb nafal, which means to fall. In other words, the Nephilim were the fallen ones, and they lived among the people of Noah's day. I mean, what a terrifying thought. What a terrifying thought that your boss or your neighbor or your daughter's boyfriend might be half human and half demon. Some of you think that your daughter's boyfriend is half demon. <laughs> But this, <laughs> my daughter's boyfriend is sitting right here. <laughs> I wasn't referring to you, Justin, but, <laughs> but this was the devil's attempt, and also this was the devil's attempt to pollute the human bloodline. It was his attempt to pollute the human bloodline, and, and this was the pinnacle of depravity and deviance. And so the fourth reason why God told Noah to build the ark was because man had become sexually depraved. He became sexually depraved. And, and do you know how many people were swept up into this indictment? Do you know how many people this involved? Well, it started with two, Adam and Eve. In the very beginning, they were the first two created. And of course, they had babies. And then their babies had babies, and their babies had babies and babies and babies, and there were lots of babies, and the population boomed. After Adam and Eve, you know, God said to multiply, right? Go multiply on the earth. And because people lived a long time back then, they had plenty of time to multiply. People back in that day would live for hundreds of years. Perhaps, and we don't know exactly why, but one of the reasons, one of the reasons why they might have lived a long time is because according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, there was a canopy of water that surrounded the earth, completely surrounded the earth and protected the, the earth from the, the, the sun's UV rays. Again, we don't know for sure, but that's a distinct possibility because the UV rays are so dangerous. And then when the floods came, that canopy burst and all that water came down on earth. That's why, there was, that's why there was a flood. But people lived a long time back then, which meant that babies, even people would have babies even when they were old. You're 100 years old and you're having babies. 150 years old and you're still having babies. And, and, uh, and so this went on for 10 generations. 10 generations of just having babies. And, and, and that takes us right up to Noah. And by the time the floods came 
in, in Noah's time, a total of 1,656 years had elapsed from the time of Adam to Noah, 1,656 years. And taking into consideration the long life expectancy, the favorable climate conditions, the exploding birth rate, the population on earth by the time Noah and the flood came had to be in the hundreds of millions, perhaps even in the billions. There were probably billions of people living on the earth at the time. And get this, every one of them was lost. They were as lost as lost can be. And so God decided to wipe them all out and start over with Noah and his family. Why Noah? Why Noah? Because Noah was the only righteous man alive. Genesis 6 verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He was the only one on earth who continued to walk with God. And just be clear, it wasn't always like this. I mean, Adam and Eve, they walk with God. And Adam passed his faith on to his son, uh, Seth. And Seth passed his faith on to his son, Enosh. And they passed it on all the way down to Enoch, who was Adam's great, 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 great grandson. And it says that Enoch walked with God. But then with each passing generation, what happened? People started falling away from God. With each passing generation, they fell away from God, fell away from God, fell away from God, that by the time you get to Noah, by the time you get to Noah, no one walked with God except him. He was the only one. He was the last man standing. See, the fifth reason why God told Noah to build an ark was because everyone else had fallen away. There was only one man left, and that was Noah. So he and his family were saved. Everyone else had become Godless and faithless. Think about that. The very ones that God created in his own image, the very ones who were created in his own image, turned against him. And they had become rotten to the core and filled with rage and violence and wicked as all get out. Even young people, evil all the time, sexually deviant and depraved, they turned their backs on him completely and God was done. He was done. Couldn't take it anymore. He had had enough. And so he wiped them out. Luke 17, verse 27 says, and the flood came and destroyed them all, except for those in the ark. Now fast forward from the time of Noah. Fast forward from the time of Noah to the time of Christ. That would have to be 2,380 years. So fast forward from Noah to Christ, 2,380 years. And now Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem with his disciples. And they ask him a question. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And by the way, when we go to Israel in November, you're going to have an opportunity to go to the Mount of Olives. Not only will you see it, but we're going to actually go to the Mount of Olives and you'll be able to stand on the Mount of Olives and sit on the Mount of Olives. And what's so amazing about it is that one day, Jesus, when he returns in his second coming, will touch down, his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives and it will split right in two, according to Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. So we go to the Mount of Olives. We fast forward from Noah to Christ. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples ask him this question in Matthew 24, verse 3. Tell us, Jesus, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, how will we know the end is here? 
right? What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus goes on to give them a very foreboding answer about what signs they need to look out for, right? Now, important note here, all right? The signs that Jesus gave us here have to do with his second coming, and they don't have anything to do with the rapture of the church, right? Just to refresh your memory, the first thing that will happen insofar as the last days are concerned is that the rapture, is the rapture of the church or the catching on the way of the church. That's the first event that will take place insofar as the last days is concerned. Christ will descend from heaven and with a trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise and all those who are alive will, will rise to meet Christ in the air and there we will be with him forever and ever. The rapture is gonna happen and that could happen at any moment. It could happen at any time, right? I hope it happens this year, right? And we'll be, all believers, all true believers will be taken up to be with the Lord and once the rapture occurs, that event will trigger a series of other events that will last for seven years that will lead to the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ at the end of those seven years. For example, immediately after the rapture, the Antichrist will rise to power. He will rise to power, establish a one world government, establish a single global currency. And then according to Matthew 24, here's what Jesus said we ought to look out for and list them for you here, all right? First, he said there will be false prophets and false teachers. Second, he said there will be wars and rumors of wars. Third, he said there will be earthquakes and famines. Fourth, he said there will be na that nations will rise up against nations. Five, he said lawlessness will increase. Six, he said the love of many will grow cold. Seven, he said there will be a revival. Now, let me stop right there. He said there will be a revival. It says there will be a revival because the gospel will be preached to the whole world. See, and many will come to believe in Jesus during that period, even though the church has been taken off. When the church is taken up, there will be no believers on the earth, but because the gospel will be preached to various means, uh, people will come to know Jesus, and there will be a revival. And, and by the way, there is nothing in scriptures that says that there will be a revival before the rapture. In other words, it doesn't say that there will be a rapture now because the there will be a revival now because the rapture is going to happen later on next year. There's nothing that says that. And, and I want to raise that because there's been a lot of talk about revival lately, and I think that's wonderful. But the Bible doesn't indicate that there will be a revival before the rapture of the church, but there will be one before the second coming. And, and I hope that there will be a revival today. I really do. I would love to see a revival, but there's nothing in the Scripture that says that there will be. Continuing on in Matthew 24, he said many will fall away from the faith and believers, and by the way, they will fall away from, many believers will fall away because there will be believers. They'll come, people will come to believe and many of them will fall away. Number nine, believers will be persecuted. The Antichrist will go after them, force them to take the mark of the beast and if they don't, they'll be killed. And number 10, Jesus said there will be supernatural signs in the heavens. And then Jesus said this. Take a look at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only, right? So we don't go and set dates and say this is when it's gonna happen because the scriptures tell us that no one knows the date of his return, only God himself, right? And then verse 37, get this. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
Wow. Jesus compared his return to planet Earth to the days of Noah. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You ought to underline that verse, right? You ought to underline that verse in your Bible. So what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, we just talked about that, right? Men were corrupt and rotten to the core. They were full of violence. They were wicked as all get out, even the kids, deviant and depraved and godless in every way. And Jesus said that the days leading up to the second coming of Christ will be just like the days of Noah. And that begs us, that begs the question, are the days we're living in like the days of Noah? Are these days that we're living in like the days of Noah? Or is righteousness flourishing? Is godliness and faith abounding? Or and in corruption and violence and wickedness and depravity abating and subsiding? I think the answer is not, right? The answer is no. Well, that finally brings us to the passage for today, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I told you we'd get there, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if Jesus asked, if Jesus' disciples asked Paul the same question that they asked Jesus on the Mount of Olives, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? I believe that 2 Timothy 3 would be, would be Paul's answer to that question. Right? So what did he say? Listen carefully to his words. Verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then Paul added, avoid such people. So in this passage... Paul gives us a list of 19 characteristics of what life will be like leading up to the last days. 19. And as you look over the list, let's be honest, as you look over the list, you can't help but think, well, there's nothing new here. There's nothing new here. I mean, people have always been like this. People have always been lovers of themselves. People have always been selfish. People have always been lovers of money. People have always been greedy. People have always been proud and arrogant and abusive, and people have always been disobedient to their parents, and on and on. Every single one of these traits, we, we can say that, that this has been, it's been like this for a long, long time since, since man walked the face of the earth. It's, it's always been like this, right? And so I'm not going to unpack each one of these traits for you because I think they're self-explanatory, but what I really point out, what I want to really point out is what Paul said in verse 13, just a few verses later. And what, and what he said in verse 13, because I think what he said in verse 13 really underscores why things will be different in the last days. Take a look at verse 13. And he said, Jesus said, and evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse. Paul said in the last days, see all these things, right? People are gonna go from bad to worse. Evil people will go from bad to worse. Just when you think that it can't get any worse, it will. It will because people will go from bad to worse. 
He said the last day, in the last days, people will literally spin out of control and descend further and further and further into spiritual darkness and sin. And I don't need to tell you that I think that's exactly what's happening today. And again, I don't want to belabor the point, but let me just give you a few examples so that you have an idea of what's going on. In 2003, exactly 20 years ago, and I chose this date this year because, you know, both my daughters are, are a little over 20 years old, so this is something that they can understand. They were around in 20, um, 20, 2003. They were here 20 years ago. In 2003, 20 years ago, there were exactly six mass shootings in our country in which 17 people were killed. Ten years later, in 2013, that would have been 10 years ago, there were also six mass shootings in our country in which 31 people died. As of May 6th, or actually May 5th, Friday, Cinco de Mayo, there have been 196 mass shootings in our country. 196 in the first four months and five days of 2023. And this according to a nonprofit research group called Gun Violence Archive, which keeps track of mass shootings in our country. And they use the benchmark established by the Congressional Research Service, which is a research arm, policy research arm of the Congress, which says that a mass shooting is an incident in which four or more people are shot at one location at around the same time. That's the definition of a mass shooting. So in 2023, in the first four months and five days, there have been 196 mass shootings, 97 people dead, and then there was another one yesterday. So that's 100, make that 197, add eight more casualties to the list that brings us to 105 or whatever it is. Now, it's just insane what's going on out there. Now, I'm not up here to advocate gun control because that's not my job. I'm not a politician, right? I'm a pastor, and I just want to show you as a pastor that things are, are indeed going from bad to worse. It, it doesn't, you don't need to be a, a brain surgeon to figure that out. Things are going from bad to worse. We are filled with violence today. And let me give you one more, a few more examples. On Friday afternoon, as I was preparing this message, I, I uh, regularly check the news um, throughout the day just to see if anything's going on. I went to uh, one major uh, news outlet uh, website. Uh, it's one of the big ones. Just to check and see if, any, there's, if, any, if there's any news uh, going on in the world today. And this was the lead story. This was the lead story, right? Right here. Father of a high school baseball player allegedly sucker punched a 63-year-old disabled veteran who was umpiring his son's game. Apparently, the man's son um, was being disruptive, and the ump said, hey, tone it down. And the father took umbrage to the ump, uh, admonishing his son, so he walked over the son when he, wasn't, when he was totally unaware and blindsided him and belted him and knocked him out cold. And you can actually watch the video, and it's, it's, just, it's just unbelievable. And then right below this story, this is on Friday, was this, story, was this story right here? And I'm not going to even read it to you. The story was about a six, what, what a six-year-old boy allegedly did to a six-year-old girl in class. There are no words. And then you go down a little bit further, and there was this story right here. And this woman 
killed two people because she was driving under the influence and while she was, after she was arrested, she, she just, the officer said, I saw the video, it's like, I had to turn it off. The officer said to her, you killed two people and she just laughed about it and just giggled about it and I could say she, was, she killed two people, not allegedly killed two people because she was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in prison. I mean, we are a, we are a world gone mad. When you, when you kill somebody and you just laugh about it like it's one big joke. Can I tell you what's going on from a spiritual perspective? Let me tell you what's going on from a spiritual perspective. Two things. Romans 2.5, Paul said, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You are storing up for yourself wrath. See, the first thing that's going on spiritually is that people are storing up wrath and they're gonna, they're, bringing, they're gonna bring God's wrath upon themselves. You see, the Bible says we will reap what we sow. You cheat on an exam and you get caught, you'll get an F. If you run, uh, if you run from the police in a high-speed chase and you get caught, you're gonna go to jail. If you tell a lie to your parents, you might get spanked. And I know what some of you are thinking, well, I just won't get caught. Well, I'll just do what I can to get caught. Well, you can try but you need to know that in God's economy, you'll always get caught because God sees everything and he knows everything. You can't run and hide from God. Hebrews 4.13 says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, God sees everything. We're naked before him and we're gonna have to give an account of our lives to him. Every one of us. That's the first thing that's happening is our world we're storing up wrath for ourselves and God's gonna, God is gonna, we're gonna have to answer to God, right? And he is not gonna be happy. Second, if, if these days that we're living are, are like the days of Noah, that means that we're quickly, it can only mean one thing, that we're quickly getting to the place where God won't take it anymore, right? If these days that we're living in are like the days of Noah, then we're quickly getting to a place where God is not gonna take it anymore. And there will be another flood not a literal one, but a figurative one in which God will, will one day unleash his wrath upon mankind. You see, judgment day is coming. And I know we don't like to talk about it. It's not, it's not you know, cool to talk about it, but, but you just need to know that that's what God's word says. Judgment day is coming. But you know what the good news is? There's some good news in this, right? You know what the good news is? God gave us an ark, and his name is Jesus. He gave us an ark, and his name is Jesus and his ark was built on his shed blood. It was built on his shed blood. Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins. He was crucified. He paid the penalty for our sins, for our rottenness, for our corruption, for our violence, for our wickedness, for our depravity. He, he took the wrath that should have been ours to take. He took it all upon himself. That's how his ark was built. And if you get on his ark, if you will get on if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you will believe in him and who he was and what he did for you, then you, your faith will be your ticket onto that ark and if you believe, you won't have anything to worry about. All these things I talked about, you don't have anything to worry about because you will be saved. You'll be spared of the wrath to come. I love this final verse, last verse for you. Jesus said this in John 5, 24. He said, truly, truly, and when he says, whenever he says truly, truly, it's like, hey man, listen to this. This is really true. It's truly, truly true, right? I say to you, whoever hears my word 
and you just heard his word today and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he does not come into judgment but his path passed from death to life. And that's sweet. If you hear his word and you heard it today and you believe in his word and you believe in Jesus, then you will not come into judgment. You will not come into judgment. And instead, you will be the recipient of his amazing grace, his unconditional love, his unending mercy. You will receive the gift of eternal life and one day when your heart beats for the last time, you'll go right into his presence in heaven. Which gets down to one last question. That is, are, are you on board? Are, are you on board his ark? Well, if you aren't, get on board today. Don't wait any longer. Don't leave here today without telling Jesus that you believe in him and you want to live for him. And if you are on board, and I hope all of you already are, I hope that all of you are on board, right? All of you are Christ followers. Then live like it. Live like it. it. Take God seriously. Take your responsibility as a child of God. Take it seriously. Don't live like the people of Noah's day who just ate, drank, and were merry, and they were completely oblivious to what was going on around them. They just did whatever, whatever everybody else was doing. That's what they did. And then the floods came and swept them all away. Which means if you take God seriously, don't just come to church and then leave and then come back again the next week and then leave and then come back again the next week and then leave. No, no, no. Endeavor to serve Jesus. We have so many needs in our church on a constant, on a constant every, every week on a constant basis. We have so many needs and we could use so much more help in every area. Come and serve him. Serve other people. Love one another. Do life with one another. And finally, just tell others about Jesus. Make it, make it your mission in life to get everybody you know on board the ark of Jesus so that they'll know him. So when the floods come, when judgment day comes, they have nothing to worry about. And you will be saved and they will be saved. That's what it's all about. Amen? Let's close our time in word of prayer. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, even for those of you who are out in the face center or in the cafe area or on, online, I want to lead you in a prayer. First, I want to ask you, are you on board the ark of Jesus? God made a way for you to be saved from your sins, which is our demise. I'm constantly amazed that God would forgive a wretch like me. And if he can forgive a wretch like me, he can forgive a wretch like you. If you've never trusted in Jesus, tell him today that you believe in him. In fact, say something like this, dear, dear God, I confess that I am corrupt and rotten in my soul. I confess that I, I think evil all the time and I'm depraved and I'm desperately in need of you. Thank you, God, for making a way for me to go to heaven. Thank you for making a way for me to be saved. Thank you for making a way that, that I will never be condemned 
for my sin because you were condemned for me. Today, I, as best as I know how, I want to tell you I believe in you and I trust you with my life. Now help me to live for you. Help me to take you seriously and help me to do everything in my power. Not only to live for you and serve you, but to tell everyone around me that they need you too. I hope you prayed that prayer. And if you, if you did, tell somebody, right? Because it's the, the most important and best decision you can ever make. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your word. And I know this is kind of a heavy message, kind of a tough message to hear. And I just pray, Father, that your words would sink deep into our hearts today and throughout this week. And that it, for all those who are here and they they declare you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you would help them to take you more seriously than they've ever taken you. Because time is short, God. We don't know how short, but I think it's short just as I look about me. And Father, as a church, will you, will you, will you build us up and will you help us to come around each other and will you help us to love each other because in this crazy world that we live in, boy, so many people are under attack and so many people are struggling as Paul said, these are, there'll be difficult days and these are difficult days. And we, we need you more than ever, Lord. We need each other more than ever. So help the church to be the church and, and help us to remember our mission that, that we got to help as many people as we can get on the ark of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We love you so much. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.